Hello, everyone. It's October 12th, 2021. This week, we're talking to Kevin Rice about what it takes to manage the financial side of aerospace from Lockheed to JPL. It's a tough job, and we tend to forget that, but he'll tell us how it's done. So let's do it and lift off. And we've cleared the tower. Welcome to episode 329 of the Orbital Mechanics Podcast. I'm David. I'm Ben. And I'm Dennis. I, I don't know if there's any news, but like, how, how, how was your guys' week? Is it turning into fall there? Barely. <laughs> it would be nice to live in a part of the country where like the, it happens a little bit here where like the leaves change color, but I think you live exactly where it's like best to experience the fall. So probably. how is the fall going where you are? Yeah, probably. I don't, I don't know. We got, we got some oranges and reds, but you know, the hillside is all still green. Because like I, I live in a valley, and so I, I've got a lot of trees that I can see, and it's all green. It's a couple of yellows and oranges and reds in the town and along the the highway, but it's it's cold. That's for sure. It's getting cold. Okay. Uh-huh. Yeah, I have not had. We I mean, had a little bit of cool weather, but not cold really. You know, like barely, just like a couple of days, but uh, still kind of hot. I'm just waiting for. You know, of course that's. Whatever, that's what everyone says every year. It's like you can't wait for yeah. it to cool down when it's hot and when it's cold, you can't yep. wait for it to warm back up. So, <laughs> yeah. And I imagine if you live in California, you're just like, hey, it's perfect all year round. Is that the way it was? <laughs> well, no, it, it, it was, uh, looking forward to spring and fall to the extreme. Cause like in the north, it was super hot and humid during the summer. And then just like, not cold enough that you really need to bundle up, but cold enough that if you don't, you're going to regret it. And then in the South, it was just hot all, all the time. It was hot and windy in the summer. And I don't know, it, it got, it got kind of bitter cold, but just because of the wind in the winter, like the air temperatures were fine, but the wind chill was going <laughs> to make you want to stay inside. We're going to talk a little bit about the Artemis program, but really, but it's really about just funding for NASA. Um, I didn't see too much on Artemis itself, although this does pertain to it. Basically, just a, I guess like an update on what's happening with the government and the what is it now? I guess it's not we're like not facing a shutdown now, right? Because there has been a continuing resolution put into place, right. which is what we're talking about here. And, and so this basically funds the government through. December 3rd, right? So that's the last quarter at the same levels of the previous fiscal year through the first quarter, right? Because October through December 3rd is the first, yeah, the first quarter. And the part that has been allocated to NASA is uh, $321.4 million. It's actually more than that, but that's the part that is for the disaster relief, which is from the hurricanes last year that had affected uh, the centers um, at Michoud and Stennis. Huh. So there is a larger, um, a larger like infrastructure initiative, and huh. this will help with that. Um, I think that there's a lot more that needs to be done in terms of infrastructure both for NASA and obviously the rest of the country, but uh, this will help, you know, with NASA specifically. This is probably more like your field, Ben, but I think that uh, the infrastructure bill would include things like the various space centers across the nation, right? And then we have this, which is more just for disaster relief because a lot of that damage has not been fixed since last year because hmm. uh, there was those two hurricanes. Or was it this past year? I'm not sure. There was the, the earlier this year was the, uh, the one that really was bad, Ida. That kind yeah, of cut okay. a swath from... Uh... Yeah, from kind of like Louisiana, New Orleans, all the way up to uh, like New Jersey, New York. That was where New York was. The subways were getting flooded. Yeah, my, my brother actually lost his car and his. Um, oh wow! 
fiance lost hers as well. Or his his got washed away, and hers just had a tree fall on it. So go, going back from disaster to money, um, so so this um, continuing resolution doesn't include any of that disaster relief money, right? It's it's just the funding level, it, right? Like it's just like continuing the previous, and so that's still in right. the future, depending on whether or not they vote on it. Okay. And then it's probably, it's probably also worth pointing out that even though the continuing resolution sets the budget until December 3rd, um, that doesn't mean that the U.S. actually is going to be able to pay for that. I think I talked a little bit about this last week, the, the way that the U.S. borrows money. Uh, or spends money before they've borrowed it, basically. And, and so the debt ceiling was lifted, but it was only, it was lifted by a dollar amount. And so people often talk about the debt ceiling, um, running out at a certain date, but it's really when it, it runs out at a certain dollar amount. And so they expect it to run at a certain date. So that is pretty close to December 3rd. So that's, you know, they're kind of setting this as a date so that it should roughly coincide with the, uh, with the debt ceiling, but like, it's just worth pointing out like how many different cogs have to spin in the right direction for all of this to work. And, you know, from a, a bitter, uh, a bitter standpoint, we put all these cogs in place. <laughs> we made mm -hmm. them, we intentionally don't oil them because we want it to be difficult to crank through all of this. We want to be able to hold this over other people's heads and both parties do it. And yeah, this is just the way the U S does money. So <laughs> I will always be better. It is a, a Rube Goldberg set of policies, essentially. I guess we should move on to some Starliner stuff, which also not a whole lot to say there, but basically their orbital flight test two did not happen because of um, some, uh, some valves that were in the, mm. they were, I think stuck closed or stuck open. Um, I think stuck closed actually. Uh, well, they, they definitely corroded. They may have been, they were, they, I think they were sticking closed, but the real, the real big deal is that they were leaking to begin with, right? There was some interaction between water vapor, um, and the nitrogen tetroxide on the other side of the valve. Um, and that was basically corroding the seal, you know, like the, like the soft gasket, um, and I'm not sure what that material is, but basically um, that had corroded and that had caused it to stick shut. I believe it's made out of Teflon. They think that they have a solution to this, that they can fix it, and that things will be good to go. They didn't say what the source of the moisture was because I do remember bringing that up. I couldn't figure out how does it get that far down into the workings of um, these thrusters. Like you have all this yeah, plumbing. Right. Yeah, yeah, right. You you expect them to clear all the lines out with dry air and then, you know, mm -hmm. it should be fine. But I, I wonder if it's just, you know, you sit in Florida long enough and you're going to have moisture everywhere. Like that's kind of a fact of life. And so even if even if they once filled them with dry air. Oh, OK, Mike in the chat says uh, that he thinks that they were blaming rain uh, for water intrusion, which is kind of crazy because like if yeah. these if everything is sealed tight <laughs> against nitrogen tetroxide, it should be sealed tight against water. But I guess I guess water is a polar molecule that's a lot smaller than I don't know. <laughs> yeah. Who knows? But yeah, I think I think it's whether it's whether it's atmospheric humidity or rain, like you know, it's Florida. <laughs> like water's going to get everywhere. If you're not if you're not constantly circulating dry air through something, it's going to get. It's going to get moisture in it. Nah, exactly. Yeah, they, that needs to be part of their design. 
<laughs> it might yeah. lead me to it. <laughs> so you really got to plan for that if you're going to need water. Yeah. Design for water. Uh, this is it, Earth after all. So Yeah, you design for space, then you design for Florida. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah, that's all, I guess, for Starliner. Real quick, running down. Just lots of uh, little translations and maneuvers, and then moving <laughs> on to number three. Well, well, hang on, hang on. So, so for the valves, I think it's really interesting that they um, left one of them closed um, without unsticking it so that they could do uh, uh, forensic testing on this one valve uh, mm. to figure out why, you know, figure out exactly what sequence of events happened. I think I just, I, I like the idea of like, okay, well we can unstick all these guys and we can do all that work, but leave that one. Cause we're going to get to it later. <laughs> it's worth noting too, that this is led to an indefinite postponement. You know what I mean? Like they don't know when they're going to launch. Like it's not going to be this year. I think they're targeting Sometime pretty early next year, but yeah, not well. Next pretty year, early. The the space news article says first half. Okay, so. first half. Well, that's <laughs> not really early, is it? <laughs> Jeez, I mean, and some of that's due to just the scheduling conflicts that you'll have with stations. So, but yeah. st- I mean, still, though, it's I mean, that's well. Just, so, so, David, what what's a consequence of that delay? Um, well, I'll let Dennis handle this. But okay. yeah, the consequence of that delay might be reassigned crew. <laughs> <laughs> right, right. So, so, Dennis, does this actually matter at all? Oh boy, this is uh, <laughs> this is humiliating. Uh, frankly, I'm, I'm getting kind of secondhand uh, embarrassment just thinking about it. But yeah, so the crew, um, the rookies in particular, are starting to be reassigned from various uh, Starliner flights to SpaceX uh, Crew Five. And so yeah, uh, NASA, right? I mean, these are still NASA astronauts, and so. Uh, they want to give the rookies some flight time sooner rather than later. And so, you know, there's about six or seven astronauts that are in the mix on various, uh, uh, you know, Boeing missions coming up. Yeah. And of the rookies, uh, Nicole Mann, who is going to be on the uh, uh, Boeing uh, crew flight test, uh, has been moved to uh, SpaceX Crew 5. And so she will be the uh, commander of that mission. And then John Cassida. Uh, another rookie who was going to be on Starliner 1 is being moved to C- SpaceX Crew 5, uh, where he will be the pilot. And so we know uh, about those two uh, for Crew 5. Um, that means there's still two open seats. One of them might be Koichi Wakata, but um, it's that might just be a misunderstanding about him preparing for an ISS mission next year, uh, according to his JAXA uh, website, his, his profile on JAXA's website. But some people have been, I mean, even the Wikipedia article has him put in there but in reality the other two seats on crew five are still open and i thought this was interesting uh nasa is hoping for a cosmonaut uh to be on crew five hmm. and um so that that means app- apparently they were looking into putting one on crew four but now that they're aiming for putting a cosmonaut on crew five that means crew four will be all all nasa or you know isa or jaxa astronauts and um uh, finally the other the the remaining rookie who's still in the mix is uh jeanette epps and uh, she is still assigned to Starliner One, so her and her and Sunita Williams are still on there. But you know, Sunny is a you know a veteran. And uh, Epps, yeah, she's been bu- she was bumped from a 2018 Soyuz mission for undisclosed reasons. And yep. so there's some I don't know there's some stuff going on there uh, where undisclosed doesn't mean that like her and NASA like you know NASA told her why and you know they're just not making it public. She she said that she doesn't know why she was bumped from the 2018 mission. Hmm. And so she's still sitting behind on Starliner 1. It's unclear whether she would get moved to a, a new SpaceX mission or 
who knows what's going to happen. But. Do you know why they're putting a cosmonaut on Crew-5? I'm imagining it's just like shuttle, right? Didn't we trade seats back and forth between shuttle and Soyuz? Uh, when I was starting to uh, research it, you know, I was just thinking to myself, are we going to start doing that again? Where we would often have the cosmonauts uh, and astronauts kind of mixed on Soyuz's in particular. And on some yeah, shuttle flights, we had cosmonauts on board as well. So the reason they want to have uh, uh, Russian cosmonauts on board uh, is, uh, well, you can see right here. Here's a quote from uh, Kathy Leader. She said uh, that we've been working with our Russian partners on what we call a crew swap strategy. We've demonstrated that it's, well, I guess that's it. The idea is just to have mixed crews so that way if there's ever a problem with the Soyuz, uh, a Dragon, or someday in the distant future, a Starliner, uh, that because you have these mixed crews, you'll be able to keep that, you know, constant uh, NASA presence and constant uh, Roscosmos presence, which is, right, a big part of the and And it's beneficial even if you don't have any issues uh, flying one or more of those vehicles because like being able to swap your crew out on a on a more regular basis is a is a good thing and it just opens up more opportunities to swap crew around to bring them up and and take them back down you know that's why we did it in the shuttle era you know there's no sense in in like segregating off different types of people into different vehicles if you can blend them together then you you know everything is much more regular and you have smaller spurts you know if that makes sense yeah and then and then like you said on top of it the contingency is really good and and it's easier to take advantage of that contingency if you have already planned to have somebody on you know a vehicle flying the month after so it's just all around a good thing and uh, it's a nice return to the way that we did things during the shuttle era okay so back to three short and sweets this week dennis what is our first one first up Taiwan Launch Company to attempt orbital launch again. After an attempt last month that ended in flames, start company Taiwan Innovation Space, or TaiSpace, will take another shot at launching its Hapith-1 rocket before the year's end. As part of the development of the company's three-stage orbital Hapith-5 launch vehicle, the suborbital prototype caught fire during liftoff at the Whalers Way Orbital Launch Complex in Australia. While the rocket fell over, local firefighters were able to keep the fire from spreading beyond the launch pad, and no one was hurt. TaiSpace's CEO said that a material near the base of the rocket evidently caught fire, and only a minor change will be made to the two remaining suborbital rockets. Next up, planetary protection might be revised. At the request of an independent review board in 2019, NASA has commissioned a National Academies Committee to conduct a study to determine whether regions of the Moon and Mars may be reclassified under less strict planetary protection guidelines. The study recommended that missions that don't plan to go more than a meter below the surface be allowed access to a wider range of lower latitudes where there is little water ice that might otherwise be contaminated. This wider range of access would allow for more missions with reduced planetary protection protocols, and it will also help to establish guidelines for future human missions. Third and finally, UAE announces plans for its next interplanetary mission. The United Arab Emirates announced a mission to explore Venus and to land on an asteroid. Last summer, the nation successfully put the Alamal, or Hope, spacecraft into orbit around Mars, where it is still operational. The ambitious new mission is targeted for 2028 and would involve a flyby of Venus before returning to Earth for a gravity assist out to the asteroid belt, where it would image seven asteroids before attempting a landing and sample collection on one of them. 
The chair of the UAE Space Agency has said this mission is about five times more complex than their mission to Mars, and if successful, would make them only the fourth nation to touch down on the surface of an asteroid. It's very cool. Today we have with us uh, Kevin Rice. Uh, he is or was the director of uh, project business management at JPL, and he had the same title at Lockheed Martin, and he is uh, now retired from both places, and so we get to pick his brain, and this is going to be really fun. Uh, hi, Kevin. How's it going? Okay, so far. <laughs> That's very polite, considering all the technical issues that we've been working through. Oh, no problem. Give us a, a quick uh, intro to who you are and what you do and what your expertise is. Okay. Uh, well, I'm actually retired now, so what I do is uh, probably not interested to anybody. <laughs> but what I did was uh, I spent 40 years in the greater aerospace uh, environment. The first 20 years was with the Lockheed Martin Skunk Works, uh, most of which was in Palmdale, California. And the other 20 years or so with the Jet Propulsion Lab, which is uh, part of the NASA community, very prestigious space science location here in Pasadena, California. Uh, throughout all of that time, I've also been a professor at a university here in Southern California. Even though I'm in the aerospace world, it's on the business side. I was uh, responsible for in the in the Lockheed world. It's more focused on corporate finance, so it's all about sales orders, income cash, internal rate of return, total business return, earnings per share, those kind of topics that everybody kind of resonates with. On the JPL side, it was more on cost management and schedule management and proposal uh, preparation and dealing with OMB kind of related stuff on funding appropriations and dealing with NASA for the yearly budget cycle. Uh, also, a lot of time spent with the vendors uh, negotiating the contracts relative to the missions that JPL was working on. A lot of interface with all the different NASA centers, you know, the greater community in the science world. So that's uh, kind of my background. My, my teaching is all in corporate finance, international business, the business side of things. So maybe we should just just go chronologically and talk about Lockheed Martin first. Mm. Um, yeah. the, you worked on a, on a bunch of different projects. I guess let's start with what, what was your favorite uh, project to work on, assuming it's not classified? My favorite project, although it wasn't the most sexy, I guess, was probably the U-2. Uh, mm. you know, it's a spy plane, but it's not classified anymore. Uh, very interesting history. A lot of great people, a lot of great uh, upgrades and, and things that we did on that on that project. Spent a lot of effort uh, with the new technologies and and new missions and functionality and what they were up to. But you know, some of the other projects were certainly more exciting, like the Joint Strike Fighter, which was now called the F thirty five. Was probably probably the most uh, I'd have to say exciting or interesting because of its new focus on, you know, it was a vertical takeoff. Uh, you can land in midair, essentially, and stop and hover. Uh, and so the, during the flight testing and things, that's, it was pretty dramatic to see that successfully happen. And you know, we went through a very intense competition with uh, Boeing 
on that competition and ended up winning. And so it was a, it was a great experience to see aircraft do things that aircraft don't normally do. So mm-hmm. uh, I think that test flight was, or the, the Virgin flight of that test vehicle was pretty exciting. Did you get to see it in person? Yes, yes, uh, did that. You know, and hats off to these these uh, test pilots, man. I tell you, I don't think there's any group of people that have more moxie than these guys. <laughs> you, know, <laughs> you know, I've seen Chuck Yeager do something. I mean, I didn't know him personally, but I've been in, in the same area or the same meeting or the same general process that he was, but I didn't know him to talk to him. It's just incredible to see. But yeah, those uh, those things were good. I worked this SR-71, which, of course, is another very interesting project. Uh, even the pilots, even on a, on a mission that's routine, it's still pretty exciting because when you, you know, it gets you know, high altitude, 70,000 feet or so, and then when it descends at some point, it kind of stalls out because of the oxygen concentration, and, and they got to restart it, and then it essentially expands and contracts the, the aircraft itself when you when it lands or it leaks oil and does anything because it had had to expand because of the pressure all of that so that's pretty interesting and you know it went pretty fast i think somebody told me that it could go from coast to coast in less than an hour uh and it took uh i think 110 miles i could be wrong on the number but not by much on how many miles it would go before it could turn around so if it was on a path and it got orders to come back. It, to turn around, it had already gone 110 miles. That's how fast it was. Oh, wow. So, I mean, those kind of <laughs> things are pretty exciting. Uh, yeah. I worked some very interesting missions that maybe, I don't think they're classified anymore, but they were in the uh, C-130, which is not a sexy plane at all. It's a, it's a cargo plane, but it's been used uh, for many purposes other than cargo. And some of those missions for jamming purposes or gunship utilization or other defensive measures, uh, those are pretty exciting to, to work on to see how we could deploy them and, and you'll get the right results. So you know, pretty much any of the missions were, were pretty, pretty interesting. Let's talk about the U-2. So like that is an, an incredibly old plane. Like it's mm-hmm. one of the oldest airplanes in the U.S. Air Force's yeah, uh, fleet, like yeah. I don't know if they have anything that is active that is as old as the U-2. So, w- what was it like maintaining a-, a budget for a vehicle that you literally couldn't go buy new ones of? Like, th- was that significantly different than working on a, a more modern airplane like the F-35? Certainly, you go through two cycles. One is more, more like a PDM, a preventive depot maintenance program where every, you know, periodically they had to come into the depot up in the Palmdale area and get refitted and upgraded and, and fixed. Because when these things land and do things, they take a good bounce. And and so a lot of the uh, things need to be repaired or modified or replaced. Uh, but they did uh, upgrades as well. A lot of projects were putting in new kits or avionics upgrades or changing some of the existing technology with new technology. So it wasn't simply maintaining it. It certainly didn't change the structure of the aircraft, but it did change the guts of it in some fashion to, uh, you know, keep up with the Joneses, so to speak. <laughs> that makes sense. So, so from a, a budget standpoint, like th- those were two different, like were those the, the PDM and then the upgrade cycle, were those like completely different or did they, 
uh, impact on each other. A lot of times you do them consistently. I mean, there's no point in up, uh, oh, okay. fixing something when you're going to just upgrade it in, anyway. So a lot of times, you know, you do an upgrade and then you would you know, fix things or repair things as it was taken apart in order to put the new upgrade stuff in. So uh, generally that was the process. But if it was simply uh, a, just a maintenance then without an upgrade, then obviously they did it just separate. But most of the time there was interface and tried to schedule things to when the upgrades happened. So, so you were pretty high up in the department. Did you have to to get into those nitty gritty details very often, or is it a system that just kind of runs itself? No, it doesn't run itself at all. The, the U two was the, the custom of Air Force was housed in Warner Robins, which is in Georgia, and we had to deal with them every year on the on the maintenance and upgrade negotiations. They weren't all year by year. There might have been a two-year contract with three option years or, you know, who knows, whatever it was at the time. And we'd have to renegotiate all of the of the next set of activities when the contract was over. And, of course, Warner Robbins always wanted to reduce the cost of the next one because of the learning curve and stuff. But at some point, you can't. You know, you get to the point where, you know, just like at, at NASA, you know, it takes so much money to send a brick to Mars no matter what else you do. Right. And and so uh, you know that was always an issue, things. But mostly it was a very good relationship uh, because it, it just as you mentioned, it's an old aircraft and it's been dealing with the same customer, the same user community for decades. And so they're very pleased with the operations. The people who worked on the U two sometimes worked on it their whole career, so they really knew how to take it apart, put it together. They could see things out of whack really quickly. And we got down mm -hmm. to a very quick, very streamlined operations to to do the, the, the card deck, which upgrades or maintains the aircraft. Uh, I would say it was a probably pretty smooth. Uh, probably most, most uh, of all the aircraft was probably the most smooth uh, relationship we had with the customer because it's been in place for so long and just, mm -hmm. you know, doing uh, similar tasks. I think NASA has a couple of them also called ER as opposed to uh, U2. And I think there's two of them. This, I've been out of it now for a long time, so I can't remember. Maybe they're both gone by now, but I don't. I don't. I think they have. I think they have a couple left. So, what was like the biggest upgrade, perhaps that that, that particular aircraft has undergone over the years? Oh well, in my tenure, I they did a complete avionics upgrade. Sounds simple, but it's it's not. It it really changes changes the mission capability, changes you know, lots of things on what they're trying to do. And it also involves some modifications to some of the structure, I believe. So that was probably the, the newest and biggest thing that happened that I can remember. How in the world do you budget for something like that? It's, you know, for the U2, it's, it's probably wasn't as difficult as some of the others because I said many people had worked it for a long time. And irrespective of what you're going to do with the aircraft, there's certain things you have to do to get ready for it and certain things you have to take out and, and I mean, remove from the airplane and disassemble. And then at the end, you've got to reverse that to put it all back. So that's pretty well documented. We kind of know what that costs. And so it's a way to estimate and figure out, okay, what is the actual process you have to do? And of course, if you have, if, these are all, any upgrade is a development activity, which means you have design engineering. So you have to 
create the, the design packages. You have to release them into the planning cycle. The planning cycle has to uh, look at what the engineering requirements are, what, what material, what you know, the requirements are to go forward and, and actually manufacture. Is that stuff in house? Is it outside? You know, that whole thing adds risk, and and so that's a bit harder to you know, to figure out what the cost is. But you know, these these estimators have been around a long time, and they and they we're pretty good at at that. When you have some of the other ones, like like the Joint Strike Fighter or, or major F one seventeen upgrade, it's a little bit trickier because there are major shifts in what. What happens? And a lot of it was classified, so new people couldn't work on it uh, mm. without being cleared and stuff like that. So I guess what you're saying about you too is it's it's not an old house where you can forget things that have happened to it and you discover them as you're as you're doing work. Mm. The U2 is a is a well characterized system, yeah. and so it, it's easy to to do those things uh, with fairly low risk because you know, every single piece of it. I would say that's a fair assessment. Yeah. It's a, yeah. Okay. It's a well-known aircraft, well-maintained. We probably were very close to our budget estimates on mm. most of them. Is that true for, for most vehicles and projects? It is in the aircraft business, you know, Lockheed, mm. you know, the, the major difference between the Lockheed world and the, JPL world, of course, one's for space and one's for airplanes, other than that. But in terms of the process is the Lockheed world or the aircraft world is a for-profit. It's a corporation. They're focused on sales and orders and income and cash. And so you have to get good at that because if you don't, you lose money. And after the first round of upgrades or manufacture, you know, become the first thing is a prototype and then you do a proof kit improve that technology. And then you do a couple of engineering manufacturing models and you know, good for a couple of times, but then you go into production. And by the time you get to production, you better be really good at what, what you're doing. Otherwise you're going to lose money big time. So the first the early years, it's cost plus, but later on, it's a fixed price entity. So I would say you, you if you can't figure that out, you're, you're in deep, deep trouble. On the other side, on the on the space side in the, with JPL, it's more of a how big is it? Where is it going? What are the requirements? And oh, let's see, that's about you know this is the mission. Missions had to fit into certain categories. So you had either a scout mission, which was know, about less than four hundred million dollars, probably, and you had a discovery mission, which may be between four hundred million and seven hundred million. And then you had a new frontiers mission, which was probably 700 million to a billion. And then you have a flagship, which is over a billion. I mean, those numbers are rough, but uh, somewhere in there. So we've done many of them before in each of those categories. So you kind of have an idea, but you usually struggle with hitting those targets because one, they take an awful long time. And two, things change over time. And three, they really don't know what, what it is. You don't even hardly no more than the level one requirements yet. So the odds of hitting the target seem to be tenuous. But in, on the aircraft side, if you can't hit the you know, your estimate by the time you get into production, you're going to lose money and then somebody's in big trouble. So I would say we were pretty good at making money at the, you know, in the Lockheed world after you know first try at it. And 
not so good at hitting the targets in the in the, in the NASA side. So you don't think that maybe that's just because in one case you're dealing with the government and in the other you're dealing with, you know, the private industry? Or do you think it's just because things like spacecraft are just, uh, there's just like so many unknowns? There's so many unknowns. It's, it's, man. You know, also another major difference is in the space side, there's no advantage to underrun a budget. Mm. So you're never going to underrun. It's almost unheard of. And the reason is, it's not that you're not good at it. The reason is every spare dollar is used to mitigate risk because you can't, you can't afford to fail. So if I'm a project manager and I'm underrunning my budget, then I'm going to spend all those dollars to do one of two things, either reduce risk, run one more test or two more tests or put in another redundant system or something to mitigate the risk, or I want to add an instrument or something that's going to generate more science. Uh, and so you all, you never underrun. But in the Lockheed side, or not just Lockheed, but in the corporate side, in the for-profit side, you underrunning means you get a higher margin if it's cost plus, and it's more dollars if it's a fixed price. So there's a lot of focus on hitting targets or underrunning targets in the in the for-profit world. So they, they're pretty good at, at being able to sort that out. I don't know if you're a Star Trek fan, but I love the episode of The Next Generation where they uh, pull Scotty out of uh, a freezer, basically. And mm. um, he chastise, chastises Jordy at one point um, for giving the captain an accurate time estimate for how long a particular uh. <laughs> uh, engineering activity is going to take. A and he goes, you know, you can't do that. Like, you have to pad out your estimates. Right. <laughs> and, and that way you, you mm. look like you're a miracle worker right. is that something right. that happens in in corporate aerospace like yeah yeah oh, yeah you do uh, you look at what you you need to bid to one be competitive because all bidders are bidding on the same same rfp or the same statement of work and so you can't be too high or too low to be out of the range so that's that's one thing to look at but you you always figure in this is this is a winning price. So what is my price to win is one concept. And the other is how do I design to the cost that I now have to live with? And and so the difference between cost and price is is your fee, is your profit. So the people like me, the business people will after we have, let's assume for the moment we've won a contract, we then negotiate with all the doing organizations on what their budget is to execute that statement of work. And then the difference between the budget and the uh, price is partly profit and then but partly management reserve to accommodate the risk. So if if you had a you know hundred thousand dollars to do something, maybe you get ninety thousand as a project manager, and the other ten thousand is a, is reserve against that. Then on top of that hundred thousand, maybe is profit. So it gives you some margin to to work with before you start eating into your profit. But you don't bid that. You, you, you can't bid reserve because you have everything you bid has to be tied to some work scope. But but you have to you have to be able to control that. So your internal budget process is different than how you prepare a bid to win. How do you make that judgment? Uh, history is one complexity is to is it a follow-on to one you've already done or is it a brand new thing is it new technology existing technology so is there any heritage 
all of those things play a role in what you know and how you you bid you bid something and and do you look at all those factors and then make a a, a judgment from the gut or do you have a, a rigorous uh, equation that you can plug everything into or I'm assuming it's probably halfway between those two yeah it's not really a, an equation but it's a if you're gonna if you get a, if you receive a statement of work that said go do this I mean or or bid this you you break it down into okay the engineering side what kind of engineering is it systems engineering is it avionics is it power is it, what is it mechanical fa- uh, electrical and so forth how many things go into that and then you look at well manufacturing am i going to build this internally to us am i going to send it out uh has have we ever done this before as some as, as a supplier we're going to go to have done this before these are the considerations that you that you go through and then you look at well how many drawings will this generate roughly is it, are they all uh, how many of them are design drawings how many of them are installation drawings how many of them are interface drawings what kind of risk is attendant to some of this stuff? How long is the planning phase or process going to take? You become very familiar with these things. You, you always you bid things in this kind of sequence. You do a matrix of every doing organization. Do they play a role in this? Have we got a quote for them? Is it consistent with quotes they've made before? If not, mm-hmm. why not? All of those things go into that. It takes a long. You know, it takes you know, a few months to put a proposal together. The whole point is to try to be competitive on one side, but don't put yourself in a corner. Yeah. Uh, and at the same time, you, you got to try to have the technical solution that is is uh, not only acceptable but intriguing. And then you got to be able to, to do that. Is this something that you can that you can teach somebody, or is this just something you have to you have I think to so. learn? Yeah, I, you know, a lot of the the process is. You follow process. There's management directives and policy processes on how you bid something, how you plan something, how you do all this. So you people go through that in each of the like. There's a whole planning group. There's a whole electrical engineering group. There's a whole systems engineering group. You know those kind of things. And and they say, well, every time I bid something, I'm going to have to do this. I'm going to have to release drawings. I'm going to have to have uh, peer reviews. I have to. Uh, do a manufacturing feasibility look at this. I mean, it's a process you follow, and they get they get good at it. And of course, you teach newer people coming in, but there's always a cadre of people that have done it many times. And you know, sometimes they're over or underestimated, but generally they're they're not far off. I would say the biggest disconnect. Well, you haven't really asked this question, but it's one of the dilemmas for all businesses is the difference between the technical activities, which are your engineers, your manufacturers, installing, testing with the business side, because the doers want all the updated stuff. They want more time. They don't focus on my budget or they don't focus on the cash flow and other things. It's like, get out of my way. I want to do this and I want to do the highest quality that we can produce. And and they don't pay as much attention to the business side. It's the business entities, the, the people like me, that have to make sure all the things are in place to be able to do the job. If we bid it competitively, do we have the right amount of budget? Is our profit, well, you know, pretty safe? Are we reducing risk? What is our risk mitigation plans? Is our contract uh, clear enough so we're not doing work that's outside the scope of work? That's another problem. A lot of people want to do things 
a customer will say, uh, hey, move that, uh, move that instrument over a foot in the airplane. And so a lot of times people say, oh, no problem, just move it over, not even a foot, like three inches. But then what you don't realize is you got a modified drawing because it wasn't there before. Or you move it over three inches, it'll change the load on the structure. Or it might run into something else that's there. And so pretty soon, that three-inch move cost you, you know, $30,000 know, uh, or more. Uh, and so it's people like me that have to say, no, that's out of scope. We need an engineering design change from the customer approving us to do that. And so that conflict happens pretty routinely, even in the for-profit world. It's very, very well known, very clear in the, in the NASA world because it's not for profit. It's hitting a budget target. And so the program projects are interested in doing the mission that they're trying to do, and they don't want to be held to certain targets. Schedule is very important, so they drive towards schedule. And if it costs more than they thought, then that's the way it is. And so they'll tell me, go find more money. But it's an interesting uh, relationship between the technical side and the financial side. That's really cool. Do you think that, that there should be more integration between those two sides or is yes. it good to have? Okay. What would that look like? In the business world, I mean, in a, which is not to say business world, I mean, corporate world, uh, it is very uh, well established now. I mean, a business manager on a project has a lot of influence because first they look and make sure the work you're doing is in scope. Then they look at what, how you're performing to your cost and schedule baseline. And are you, a lot of times project people don't know enough about contractual stuff to say, yes, we can do it or no, we can't. So it's a partnership that has to happen so that you're not doing things that are not contractually tasked. And so there's a better partnership there because the rewards that projects get are based a lot on their performance, not only technically, but also financial. And so there's a better partnership there and it's becoming more evolving. And I, and I think it's, it's, it's pretty good. It's, it's got a long way to go on, on, the, on the NASA side. It's not just NASA, it's other government right, right, yeah. as well. Uh, because of the fact that there's always an opportunity to revisit the budget. Uh, because first of all, budgets are funded year by year on, on these missions. And so there's, if something delays, you can move money to a different year. I mean, there's lots of things that that make the arrangement between the business side and the technical side less favorable, let's say. And so part of my job at JPL was to bridge that gap and demonstrate that business focus actually brings more uh, value to the project because by controlling the work scope and controlling the cost to do that work scope, you actually have more money at the end of the day mm -hmm. to reduce risk or generate more science. And I think uh, that's that's a help. Like we might be able to go outside and do something cheaper than we could do it in-house. Or we might run into, let's say something has to go through a, a thermal vac chamber for testing. Well, what happens if something's already in there? Uh, scheduling people, which is part of the business side, have to work through those things to make sure everything happens to the maximum benefit to everybody. 
it sounds like what you do does help just because if you keep people, like if you impose certain, let's say, restrictions, then that forces them to kind of, like you said, stay on task because I think that things could sort of, you know, drift pretty far afield if they're just concerned with the engineering. But it's always good to have, you know, just like someone there who keeps you on point. What's the term I'm looking for? There's a term for this. Um, I guess it's kind of like not like, you know, preventing mission creep so much, but uh, sort of the same thing with respect to engineering and business in yeah. general. Uh-huh. That, that is true. And in the corporate environment, the focus at the end of the day has to be on generating free ca- cash, which is profit when it's all over. I remember one of the uh, things I'll never forget when, and, and, and pardon, because uh, when I speak it, I'm sure I can say this on, on recording, but I'll try. Uh, <laughs> the CFO uh, made his rounds of the whole Lockheed Corporation made uh, his rounds, and I was a new manager at the time. And so he introduced himself uh, to, to me and other managers as well. But he came into uh, the office I was in. And in those days, we didn't have whiteboards, we had chalkboards. And he wrote, he took, he put a little square up in the right hand corner of my chalkboard in the office. And he, he said, you know, if you want to be a successful business manager in the Lockheed world, you, all you need to focus on is three things. If you do these three things well, you will be successful business manager at Lockheed. I said, oh, God, that's only three things. I could probably do my best to try that. <laughs> the first thing he put on the board was cash is king. He said, never lose sight of the fact it's all about cash. So cash is king. The second thing he wrote on the board was no shit, cash is king. <laughs> and the third thing he wrote on the board was Always remember that cash is effing king, and he wrote it out. And that message, you know, he was not a vulgar person. That was a that was a message to us people that said, focus on this. Don't make a decision that impacts our profitability at the end. And another meeting, I can't remember now if it was for, before or after that, uh, the actual CEO of the corporation back in those days was, I uh, can't remember who it was now, I think it was uh, Larry Kitchen was giving a uh, talk to all of us in the big hangar. And he told everybody that was assembled there, which was a you know, large population of people, that he said, if anybody in this room thinks we're in the aircraft business of modifying or designing aircraft, you're wrong. We're in the business of making money for our shareholders. And if we could make fire trucks instead of aircraft, we would do that. It's that aircraft design, manufacture, and, and development is what we know how to, that's the best way we know how to do that. But it's all about cash. It's all about profit. It's all about wealth. So don't lose sight of that. So that immediately puts a focus on the role of, of business in operation. So I never lost sight of that, of that uh, little, those couple of lessons. On the other side, and the NASA side, you know, the JPL side, a lot of these missions, especially the Mars mission, you know, the Mars missions can only launch every 26 months, so you have to wait until the next 26 months. And so you can't have anything creep in that will cause that slip. So schedule is paramount. And, and so cost is secondary to that. And you don't want to be foolish in it, but a lot of times as you go through to get ready for the launch, we're making decisions that support schedule as opposed to, to, to cost management. And so we may overrun. We don't want to slip the schedule. 
And so that becomes the focus, not so much on, on the other things. And since you're not making profit, that's not, a, that's not a priority. It's getting things in place so that they have funds to spend. I remember very early in my JPL career, there was a scientist that was working on a grant, I think it was of some kind. It was, it was under a million dollars. Uh, I think it was like, I'm making this number up, 750000 or something. And he had so much to spend that year. And the year starts in October and runs through the end of September. And he uh, came to me because he was pretty much out of the budget and it wasn't October. In fact, it was like July or something. And he said, hey, I need more money to finish my task. And, oh, I think the business person in, in my group that I signed to that, look over that, said, hey, we have to stop because we can't spend money that's not appropriate. You know, we, we government, uh, uh, OMB, Congress, whatever you want to call it, gives money to NASA. NASA funds things. So it's government money. We're not allowed to spend money that we're not authorized to spend. And so we had no authorization to spend. We didn't have time uh, to go back and ask for more money. Uh, we, well, we probably could have. I'm not sure we would have been approved for it or would have gotten it before the year was over. But until there's money in place, we have to stop. And so I told him, no, uh, man, you, you're out of, you, you only got another week, maybe two to, of funds, and then we have to stop. And he was totally upset by it. And he said, well, you need to go get more money. I said, I, <laughs> this is the process, you know. And so he was flabbergasted. He said, well, you need to go, you need to, you need to call the president. I said, <laughs> of the United States? You know, <laughs> you know, it's it's that they're they're so consumed by what they do, and some of these missions take so long that that's their focus, and they they, re, they think that what they're doing is paramount to the to humankind. And you know, George Bush uh, Jr. I guess was president then, uh, and I said, ah, you don't understand. I'm not, he's not on my Rolodex here, you know. So, <laughs> uh, but it's the it's that kind of passion about what they do in the in the belief that it's so important that money cannot be a prohibitive thing but it is and that's the dynamic that has to balance i i couldn't help but think when you mentioned uh the whole philosophy uh the cash is king i kept thinking about boeing and, and all the problems that they're having because yeah. a lot of people would say that that's exactly <laughs> uh what put them in the situation that they're in yeah. so what do you have to say about that uh well, refresh my mind. What what specific are you talking about? Things like the Boeing Starliner, but even more so. Uh, what was it? Um, uh, was it their new seven thirty seven? The Max. Or no, no, the Drew yeah. or the yeah. Okay, yeah. yeah. You mean overruns or well, I, I'm not familiar with it. You know, once you retire, you check out of some of these things. <laughs> <laughs> well, basically, that they took a lot of shortcuts, or or that they made some bad engineering decisions because they were trying to keep costs down. down. Yeah. Yeah, that's not a good thing. That's a, that's a bit, yeah, some of them, some, you got to be careful you don't break the law too, but you know, yeah. violate statutes and things. Right? And I don't know the particulars. Well, so I, I think, I think Dan, or, uh, David's question is really good though. Like if you have this, uh, you know, slightly adversarial relationship, like yeah. I don't want to make it sound like, you know, like, uh, like it's the big bad wolf versus, you know, the whatever riding hood, but like, uh, if, you have these checks and balances. Um, how do 
you ensure that you don't go overboard in one direction or the other. We talked about going overboard um, where you run out of money. How do you make sure you don't go the other direction? Other direction, respect that you you cut costs to the point where you made more money. More, yeah, you don't uh, you don't spend enough money and you fail to meet your engineering requirements. Ah, uh, yes, uh, that yeah, that's wow. Yeah, that's a big problem. Yeah, you, first of all, you're supposed to depends on where you are, what what the project is, if it's a cost contract or a fixed price contract. But there's weighted guidelines when you when you negotiate the contract. You're you know every company is warranted a certain amount of a reasonable profit and reasonable profit is consistent with weighted guidelines so the more risk the more profit you're allowed but when you get into production you're supposed to have mitigated the risk so if this was in the early stages of early stages mean you weren't in production yet uh it was probably a cost contract and and so underrunning to the point where you're generating more cash i'm not sure what the motivation for that was because you're only going to get paid your cost plus uh, whatever your negotiated fee amount was. Uh, so is, is if it was in a fixed price arena and now you're underspending because you're trying to generate more return, uh, and, but you don't meet the requirements, well, that's, that's a performance problem. And that's, that is, uh, that's, a, that's a bad thing. <laughs> that's, that's a real bad thing. So, wow, I, I didn't recognize, I mean, I, I didn't, uh, know this about this particular issue, but that that that'll get them into problems, and it it might cause the project to be canceled. I mean, it certainly caused them to spend more money than just doing it the right way the first time. <laughs> right, absolutely, and and I guess uh, I'd like to be in some of those meetings when they're talking to both the project and the business team. And what the hell were you thinking? Yeah, Kevin, I was wondering just more generally uh, during your time at Lock Lockheed, what was the biggest change you saw in the industry business wise? Oh. I look at it from the business side. First, I would say there was a lot of change in the defense budgets because of the threats that we see. You know, the whole 9/11 process, the whole even before that, in the mm. you know in the Iran Ayatollah end of the Reagan era, because you know the Soviet Union broke up, the Berlin Wall comes down. So a lot of the spending changes. And the refocus on how we position ourselves in the defense industry was a big change. I and mean, that's not technology by any means, but it's, it's mm -hmm. a, it's a political shift in what are you going to defend? And, you know, how do you handle all the new nations that, uh, that are created? So that, mm -hmm. that shifted a lot of the focus, I think. And some of the, of the projects that maybe were in work or were being considered for work, uh, or potential awards was, was not pursued and other, others were. Uh, I can't speak for in the Army or the Navy, but in the Air Force, that was, that was pretty clear. Uh, more on high tech defense, more on computer, you know, cybersecurity kind of things, which is by now is a huge deal, but it started back then. Uh, so I think with the, you know, the whole ability to, hack into things and the ability to uh, really take advantage of this high-tech environment that we find ourselves in now created different decision trees. And I think that happened during my time there. You know, I, was, I was still at Lockheed when the 9-11. Uh, mm -hmm. So uh, huge, a huge focus uh, shift in those days. Someone here wrote a, a question about X-33. Was that you, Dennis? Oh, that was me again, yeah. <laughs> 
So, Kevin, uh, what is the X-33? Yeah, the X-33 was a, a very interesting uh, project. It was awarded to Lockheed, but we had several industry partners on how we shared the uh, arrangements. We had joint venture with a, def- a couple of different places uh, because it was such a big, big thing. And it was designed to be a reusable cargo vehicle, you know, space travel cargo kind of. And the majority of it was the fuel tanks and the rest was, you know, cargo. And so we went through the X designation, you know, means it's experimental. So uh, we worked on that for a long, long time and some problems came up major ones. One was the the issues with the thermal protection system, you know, the panels that go on the aircraft, uh, as we even saw from one of the space uh, shuttles, how when one of those tiles falls off, the problem it creates. And so that was hard. That was a, that was a, that was a big deal to sort that out. But the fuel tanks uh, were the, the, the things that ultimately caused it to fail. Uh, they were massive. And, and by the way, the X-33 itself, the vehicle was only a 60% model. So what we were actually producing and testing was not a full-scale model. It was a 60% and or somewhere near 60%. And I, I'm not an engineer by any means, but I'm sure it wasn't simply add 40% to get the real <laughs> So it's, you know, you had to figure out, well, what would really have to, you know, what, what algorithms would allow us to you know, maximize the, the things that we have in order to be accommodating to the larger vehicle. Nonetheless, we went down, it was a, at the end, when it was finally canceled, it was an incredibly uh, ambivalent day because, mm-hmm. oh, not day, but a few days, because we went, the test was down, uh, it was either Marshall or Michoud, it was in, uh, down either in Alabama or, or Louisiana, some, I forget which facility was actually testing, it was Michoud. Anyway, it was down there, and the big risk was when you fill, when you compress the fuel tanks, could they withstand the pressure? And so they filled it up and charged them, and you know, fully pressurized the tanks, and that was successful. I, I, I don't know how long it took—a day, two days, I don't know—but some period of time. And so we got the news: the pressure tanks uh, passed the pressure test. However, when they tried to decompress the tanks, they Crunch like a beer cake. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's what was the final. Sorry, we just we canceled. They canceled the program right after that. Uh, Dan Golden was the head of NASA at the time, and uh, so that was the uh, the X thirty three. It was very interesting because at the time it was the first uh, concept of something reusable uh, for cargo purposes. It was uh, you know to go. You know, outside Earth's orbit. I, I'm not sure if it's outside Earth's orbit, but certainly into Earth's orbit. None of, you know, there wasn't anything else doing it. And so that was uh, supposed to be the great new innovation. And so NASA paired with, with Lockheed, not Lockheed Space, by the way, it was Lockheed hmm. Aircraft, because that was still viewed as an aircraft. And so hmm. you know, it was one of the odd relationships. You know, NASA generally, when it's dealing with spacecraft, it's, it's with, Lockheed Space, which is a whole different company. I mean, it's part of the Lockheed world, but it's not the aircraft side. Hmm. But they par- partnered with us, and we partnered with, uh, I think it was Northrop, was it? I forget. No, it was Northrop, uh, to do a lot of that work. And 
industry partners, um, you know, for that will be using it for utilize the cargo capability. And it was uh, an interesting, we, it was probably four or five years, maybe more, I can't remember. Uh, we actually created a separate entity within the aircraft company to stand it up alone. Uh, so there's, uh, it was a completely different entity than, than what we were used to seeing. It's not your typical aircraft. It's a kind of quasi aircraft, quasi spacecraft. And then when it failed, there's a lot of attention. You know, the, NASA was out looking over that at meetings pretty constantly. And it, uh, that was a sad day when that, it just went crunch. And that was like, okay, yeah, the money, it, it's not like, it's not going to, it couldn't happen. It's the money it would have taken to fix whatever that was, was not deemed to be worth it. So I guess we should wrap it up. Um, this has been a very fascinating interview, Kevin. So thank you for that. And our penultimate question uh, just before you leave is, where would you like to be found on the internet? I guess it would be the business space uh, uh, on that website would probably be good. Well, I guess, I guess it's worth pointing out that um, Winston over there is who connected us. So yes, uh, maybe we should do him a favor and talk about uh, what he does. <laughs> Uh, Winston is uh, the guy who brings all the stuff together. He's my—he's the guy who schedules things, who coordinates with people, makes sure that all the IT stuff is sorted out, reaches out to different uh, entities, uh, uh, is kind of a doer of what what we are in the business space. I'm just the guy who talks. And the business space, if you don't mind me giving me a little bit of what, what it is, is because I retired, I really didn't have any idea of what to do. You know, it really bothered me that all these years, 40 or so, of being a, a, you know, most of that time being on the executive team and leadership positions, what do I do with all that perceived knowledge? I mean, others may argue I don't have any knowledge, but <laughs> I'm guessing I have some. And I've been successful, I've been quite successful in my career. And, uh, and that's translated, you know, to many years as being a teacher as well. And so I didn't know quite what to do with it all. And I believe that the, you know, whatever's going to come next in our technological advances is going to come from the younger generation. That's always how it is. People of my age group are good at making what we do now better, but we're not necessarily that skilled in coming up with what's next. You know, if you look at Elon or Bezos or or Gates when he started, or uh, Steve and Jobs and things. They're all younger people that created whatever's next. And so Winston, we can, I can't remember how we connected, to be honest, but we did. And his thought was, why don't you start reaching out to the clubs uh, at the universities around the country? And so he uh, connected with them, sent emails to, we found them on the internet and sent out a ton of messages or inquiries as, hey, do you have any interest in speaking to this fellow who does this? And so we have now spoken to probably 40 or more universities uh, at their events. They're split between the business community, clubs, uh, whether it be uh, accounting or business in general or investment or wealth management or whatever. Uh, and then the aerospace clubs, which are mostly rocket type clubs. And for an hour or so, I go to one or I go via Zoom to one of their events and I speak on whatever topics they would like. Some mostly are either business related, how to get a job. I mean, I've conducted hundreds 
of interviews, thousands maybe over my career. So I tell them what to look for, how to answer it, what to do, what to think about. And I talk about leadership uh, things and how to succeed and, and all that. And then any specific uh, questions on business or what, what corporations really focus on. And, and, and we have a dialogue on that. And some send in pre-questions, uh, some it's free form. And that has really resonated very, very well. And I've gotten tons, or we have gotten tons of response on uh, how much they enjoyed it. And so what we did was form this business space, which is a place that they can connect. And so we've got 100 or more members now, just in a few months. Some are international. I've spoken to some international ones. And it's, it's all free. It's just uh, a, a place where all these different clubs can do a few things. One, they can connect with each other, not only in their own club, but other clubs, uh, all similar uh, education uh, levels, very bright, very passionate people uh, perform, you know, what they do great. They, they join and win some of these space challenges and what they've people have done as 20 year olds is just beyond me. And very, very, very good. And so they've connected with each other and hundreds of people. Second thing we've done is we brought in two groups of speakers. Uh, group number one, not necessarily in this order, but group number one are the entrepreneurs, the younger startup type things, either uh, still developing a prototype uh, and they talk about their challenges and how they got funding and what the issues were, how they overcame them, where are they in their TRL cycle and all that, and what their mission is and what they're doing and how they plan to get there. Uh, found that very fascinating. Uh, or they're uh, maybe a little bit more mature organizations that actually have a prototype or actually have a production unit in place, uh, uh, some more people in, involved in, in things. And those people have, have been, the speakers have been very excited about speaking to these students. Uh, many of them are expanding, so they're looking for people to work there, which is what the students are looking for. So it's been very good. The other group of speakers are people like me who have uh, either their icons in JPL or Lockheed that been there, done that. Uh, and most of their input is, if I were you, I'd do this. <laughs> and, and you know, talk about their story and, and whatnot. So it's been very good on that, on that scale. We're also brought some private equity type venture capital speakers for the business people, some CFOs from different organizations. And also some recruiters that uh, are speaking about how to prepare for a job and uh, how how to uh, you know succeed in the marketplace. So it's been it's been exciting, and and we speak at uh, different clubs around the country and around the world now, and it's just fun. It's, that's what the business space is. It's not. It, it's just a place where business and technical people can. Students can join and communicate with each other and ask questions and seek opportunities. And Winston is kind of a guy that reaches out to everybody, answers everybody, sets up things, uh, reaches out to the potential speakers. All I do is I'm the guy who talks. <laughs> you know, <so. laughs> okay. And then uh, finally, our, our last question is a little bit of a game. Um, we've been asking our guests um, to play a little game of overrated, underrated with us. So oh. overrated, underrated is a really simple game. It is a quick fire list of products or concepts. And then I want you to tell me 
if you think that the world sees too much value in these things, too little value in them, or, you know, occasionally even, uh, that the world correctly values these things. <laughs> okay. Does, if does I know what they good? are, I'm happy. Yeah, I could do it if I know what you're talking about. That's I, I, I've written these just for you. So I'm, I'm confident. Oh, okay. Okay. So first, pre-phase A projects, overrated or underrated? Underrated. Capitalism, overrated or underrated? I think it's, uh, I think it's underrated, but it's not used. I mean, we abuse it, but anyway, I'd say <laughs> underrated. Yeah. Uh, NASA's uh, aeronautics programs, overrated or underrated? I gotta go overrated there. I'll get yelled at for that, but I'd say. <laughs> <laughs> we, we can we can we can uh, uh, totally edit this. I'm just kidding. Uh, okay. Um, wide schedule reserves, overrated or underrated? Absolutely necessary. So they're underrated, even though they're always on the top of the list. Mm. They should be on. Under, they should be on a list of their own. If you can't meet schedule, you, you're done. Overrated or underrated skunks? Oh, you can't overrate them too much. <laughs> <laughs> you can't grow up in the skunk works for 20 years and not think they're just top of the list so. <laughs> okay great well thank you so much uh for for taking all this time to to tell us stories and and share your experiences sure it's been fun let's do this week in space history we have one winner and that winner is ben edlington so <laughs> congratulations <laughs> Uh, See, and how did I, you guess this clue? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, like, I, you know, I, I tend to think that if nobody guessed the clue, it was a bad clue. Like, that's how that's what that data point says to me. But if it's a good clue, then, yeah, I, I'm a winner. But I'm, I'm not convinced of that. <laughs> so the clue was Strange shares half of this with Down. And all three accurately described this event. And I got the first part, Strange shares half of or half this with Down. I had, figured it had something to do with quarks. Uh, but that's as much as yeah. I knew. I didn't know what the exact event was. But I think I'm right on that part that's, of the clue, right? That's as far as I got to spin specifically. They're all half spin yeah, yeah, exactly. I could not figure out the second half. Of yeah, so maybe I think the second half probably needed a, a little bit of clarification because what I was trying to do is get you to take the the three words strange, down, and spin and use those to look for an event, but I don't think anybody really quite got there. Okay, so this week, in, I will go into more detail in a second. This week in spaceflight history is the 12th of October, 1999. It was the final flight of rotary rockets Roton ATV. Okay, so the clue. Uh, first off, uh, Drew and Peter on Twitter uh, at least got the three words in place, but then they, they weren't able to get anywhere from there. But yeah, uh, strange quarks and down quarks share a spin of 0.5. So that's how you get to those three words. Um, so I, I think that strange and spin down are, you know, about the most accurate descriptions of Roton that could ever be conceived. So let me, let me get into the, the strangeness here. Rotary Rocket Company was formed in uh, 1996 by Gary Hudson and Bevan McKinney. And the, the strangeness starts from there. No, not Bevan's first name. Uh, the strangeness begins with their initial funding round. Uh, they got funding from Walt Anderson, which is not unreasonable, but also 
Tom Clancy. Yes, that Tom Clancy. <laughs> uh, Tom Clancy bought into a company called Rotary Rocket Company. Okay, so Roton itself was supposed to be this low-cost reusable rocket. The airframe was fabricated by Scaled Composites. Rotary Rocket Company themselves um, manufa- designed and manufactured the engine and the landing system, uh, and they uh, they built some of it. Um, we'll get into the hardware in a second. Um, but all of this was done at the Mojave Air and Space Port, um, which is great because that's where Scaled Composites is. So Roton, if you're not familiar with this thing, uh, it combines a helicopter and a classic rocket. Uh, helicopter blades initially were planned to be used to power the vehicle on ascent. And so like we're talking about like helicopter blades with with rocket engines on the tips and like that that sounds totally crazy but actually it's not it's not horrible if if you put your rockets on the bottom of your rocket and point them in the same direction that you're traveling that's a great way to use those rockets however if you put them on the ends of spinning helicopter blades you actually get like an effective isp increase um because um the the energy that they spend to spin up that rotor is translated into thrust. Um, and so when you're in the, the dense part of the atmosphere down here, you actually get n- not an actual ISP boost, but like a pretend ISP boost of somewhere between 20 and 30 seconds. So, <laughs> okay, sorry. So, <laughs> so this is like, this is more or less the first I'm hearing of this. Although I think I've oh. seen, an, I think I've seen an image of it, but I, thought okay. this is all very vague i thought that this was for like maybe bringing that stage back like it came yes. down on little helicopter blades yes hang, hang on to your horses we're going there <laughs> okay but you said that it's also used during launch yes to actually provide well, i i know i know just, just all right I know <laughs> trust me on this one bud i told you this is weird you you just gotta sit back and let the weirdness wash over you okay 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 <laughs> okay so uh so increasing your isp by 20 to 30 seconds it, it's a fun novelty but like this isn't gonna get you into orbit um partially because there is no air up higher and helicopters don't work in the upper atmosphere but also because 20 to 30 seconds is a very modest uh increase in your efficiency um and so the the increase in efficiency is only enough to like quote unquote pay for the mass of the rotor system itself so if you're going to build a rocket like this you're not going to go all the way to orbit and it's not going to be super efficient compared to any other rocket so using these rotor blades to get yourself some altitude basically all that's doing is letting you bring the blades along for free and then you have to do something else helpful with them, um, which would basically be landing with them, right? That's what, that's what you're thinking, David. And yeah. so, um, the initial version of the vehicle was targeted towards the small satellite business. Um, but because they were founded in 1999 and was it Intel sat? No, no, no. It was Iridium went bankrupt in. Uh, 2000. So like, just as this company is getting going, they go, Oh crap, the small satellite business is going to die. 
uh, spoiler alert, it didn't. Um, and Firefly would like to say thank you for taking yourself out of the running. Oh, snarkiness aside, um, they decided to switch to designing a heavy lift vehicle. And this heavy lift vehicle basically had enough uh, uh, enough thrust or enough delta V that they didn't need to use the rotor blades on the way up. They could just add a little extra fuel and it would be fine. And so the heavy lift version of the vehicle, like you said, David, didn't have uh, the rotor blades used during the ascent. That may be somewhat of a reduction in weirdness, but I guarantee you we're going to make it back with interest. Okay. <laughs> um, okay. So, so let's, let's like get into the, the bulk of the weirdness because you would think that the weird part of this vehicle would be the helicopter blades. And I promise you it's not. So instead of having any normal rocket engine on the bottom of this thing, they decided to have a spinning rocket engine. And it's not 100% clear what design uh, they would have settled on. I think partially because um, they didn't know, right? They, like they, they ended up going bankrupt before they could build uh, an ascent vehicle. So because they never uh, were able to build an orbital version of this vehicle, it's not clear exactly what this engine was going to look like, right? To us or to them, I suppose. Um, but the weirdest version of their, of their spinning engine used an annular combustion chamber attached to an aerospike that spun at 720 RPM. So the idea, like the, the reason that this makes any sort of sense is because you have to pump your fuel into your combustion chamber, right? And so you've got a, a, a turbo pump that's spinning and most turbo pumps are centrifugal pumps where instead of having, um, blades that rotate and force a fluid through them, uh, along the spin axis of the impeller, a, a centrifugal pump spins an impeller and it flings. It doesn't allow the fluid to flow past it. Instead, it flings it out towards the edges and then you collect it from the edges and convert its tangential uh, velocity into all one direction. Uh, basically, you're, you're raising the pressure and then you can pipe that pressure wherever you need it to go. And so if you're already going to have uh, a turbo pump on board, the bigger your turbo pump is, the more efficient it is, uh, because you, you get to take advantage of larger, uh, centrifugal, centripetal, uh, forces. And, and so if you're, if you make a giant turbo pump, why not just attach your entire combustion chamber onto the outside and spin the whole assembly? Like, I, I can't tell you how bizarre this is, but it's like delightfully bizarre because it, it makes up sort of perverted sense. Um, so, so they have this giant, uh, impeller that takes up the diameter of the vehicle pretty much. And then an annular combustion chamber that wraps around the outside. And we spin the whole thing up to above 700 RPM. Um, the really kind of elegant, actually, there are two really elegant things about this solution. First off is that you self limit your engine's thrust, right? Because as this, if you design this annular uh, combustion chamber so that it ejects the propellant, um, not straight down, but instead at a slight angle, it can spin itself up kind of like, you know, a party. What are those party favors that like you blow into them and they go, do you know what I'm talking about? 
Oh, like the Kazooie kind of one? Yeah, except there's one that's got a spinning propeller and the pitch changes as the propeller yeah, spins yeah, faster yeah. or slower. Um, and it's also kind of like um, one of those um, sprinklers that you attach a hose to and then and then it's got arms that rotate around and the arms are propelled by the water that's spraying out of them. So you basically build that sprinkler system and um, the faster the engine spins the higher the propellant feed rate is because there's more centripetal motion and the faster your propellant is moving the higher your throttle is right so if you set this thing up properly it can self-limit to get up to a certain speed and then stay there basically you have to It'll, it'll get up to the point where additional speed is pushing up against the, the limits of restricted flow. So like all of the, um, all the friction plus probably, um, some intentional constrictions. Um, but also, you know, your, um, your fuel sprayer, right? That injection plate, um, which is actually an injection donut because it's an annular combustion chamber <laughs> um but like you know you have all these friction sources that um will only allow a certain amount of pressure to build up and then once the pressure is above that it overcomes a friction and right so so this thing can can self-limit the only problem is that you have to pick your thrust level when you're designing the whole thing because if you're not going to add any additional control elements um, you don't get to pick it before you launch or while you're flying but like there's kind of an elegant idea you know if if there's a thrust uh, level that works for you um, you can have uh, an engine with fewer moving parts, uh, if you count them, um, more moving parts, if you mass them, <laughs> um, but more of it's moving, but you know, there, there are fewer surfaces that are grinding against each other, I suppose, maybe. Um, but you know, you have kind of this, this, this object that can do one job and no other job. So it kind of self limits itself anyway. Um, uh, and, and then the other really elegant thing is that, uh, liquid oxygen is denser than kerosene. So that means that as you're pumping it, it winds up, if it's going through a centripetal pump, that is the same pump that the kerosene is going through. I still can't believe this. Um, you wind up having higher pressures, um, at the outside. You have higher pressures of liquid oxygen than kerosene. And so, uh, liquid oxygen can be your your coolant, right? Because you're going to need to add additional uh, friction, right? To use up some of that pressure before you dump it in the combustion chamber. Believe you me, this thing has got cooling problems that really do need to be solved. Um, but bef before we go there, the, the fact that LOX is denser than kerosene does present some issues, uh, or at least it's coupled to some issues. Basically, you're going to have really high G-forces at the rim of this rocket, and nobody knows exactly how you're going to have your your locks flowing around and so the, really if they were to build this engine they would have had to spend huge amounts of time and effort just to characterize how the liquid oxygen was going to behave and then even more time and money uh, and effort 
to um, to actually prove that it works, right? To to actually uh, validate this object as something that's not just going to explode the first time you try to use it. Now, with all that said, um, they also apparently were looking at a much less interesting version um, that instead. Uh, was much more like the sprinkler. You'd have 72 combustion chambers at the end of pipes and and everything would spin like the sprinkler instead of having this annular combustion chamber. A, a lot of little tiny combustion chambers makes a lot more sense. But this thing is an aerospike. Um, you've got an annular combustion chamber or many little combustion chambers firing around a, a truncated aerospike. Well, so it's, it says here in the Wikipedia article that there are 96 miniature jets, which would exhaust a burning propellant. Now, these jets are actually rotating, right, around yes. a truncated spike? Yes, um, perhaps an infinitely truncated spike, but yes. So as they're rotating, wouldn't centrifugal force or centripetal, which, like whichever one it is, wouldn't that cause some issues with the exhaust? Or am I missing something? Oh, yeah. Something? Oh, yeah, okay. it would. So. Um, Oh my gosh. So they wanted to use the bottom of this thing as a, as a heat shield. And so they wound up truncating their aerospike down to nothing. So now they just have a bunch of rocket engines spinning around, um, with nothing in the middle. And, uh, due to aerodynamic forces that I do not in any way understand, instead of having some of the issues that an aerospike does with pressure underneath a truncated uh, plug, this would have all those issues and more. You'd actually wind up drawing a vacuum in the middle, and it would be a really strong vacuum because of the way that the thrust was spinning. I, I don't understand exactly why. And so um, at some point, they actually, apparently, I don't know if this is true, but apparently they considered adding, a, a, I guess, a 73rd engine. I was going to say a second engine, but a 73rd engine in the center just to provide some pressure. <laughs> Hmm. But yes, yes, this has so many issues that, I mean, we could sit here and come up with new ones. I, I'm pretty sure just talking amongst ourselves. Yes. So yeah, like, like I said, they, um, they were planning on using the bottom of this thing as a heat shield. And, uh, for one reason or another, they expected to, they, they wanted to water cool this heat shield and they expected, uh, that with the way their heat shield was designed, they were going to generate um, superheated steam. I, I have no idea why that was like a necessity of this design. But for one reason or another, they expected to have to deal with superheated steam. And from what I understand, they would have had to capture and recondense it so that they didn't just like end up having to bring huge amounts of water along and dump it overboard uh, while reentering. So... Um, not only do you have to deal with capturing and, and condensing superheated steam, but this heat shield um, is big enough that they were worried about micrometeoroid impacts. So they wound up having to make a heat shield that was damage tolerant, had a very reliable flow rate of water through it, and could handle three phases of water. Well, I, I guess I guess two phases of water. Um, superheated steam is, is still just steam. It's just very, very hot. And like they experimented with some of the flow rate things. They, they basically poked holes in steam and made them bigger until 
they got the right flow rate and maybe they tried some additional geometries. They wanted to have like a multi-layered structure so that you could punch a hole in part of it and it would still have other layers that would be okay. I am totally confused by this whole thing because, you know, it just the whole thing wasn't well characterized um, by the time that the company went out of business. So they didn't know exactly what they were doing. Um, and so it's really hard for me to figure out what they were doing. Okay. So let, let's go back to these, to these rotary blades. While there are some diagrams like this one that Dennis found and will be in the show notes that indicate that the rotors were going to be telescoping, I don't think that was ever a serious suggestion. In fact, their first designs had fixed dihedral, uh, blades. So I'm pretty sure that this is matching the definition of dihedral, but basically um, dihedral is usually used to describe fixed wing aircraft, right? Like a, like a normal airplane. Um, if your uh, wings are level, that's a dihedral of zero. If your wings, if the tips of your wings are higher, that's a negative dihedral. If they're down, it's a positive. Actually, it's probably the other way around. If they come up, it's a positive dihedral. If they're lower than the root of the of the wing, then it's a negative dihedral. But like dihedral is a, is a, a, a word that is normally associated with fixed wing aircraft. I've never heard of a, of a spinning helicopter blade having a dihedral angle, but like that's what they were talking about. They were going to have these things canted, um, so that they didn't have to hit, they didn't have to have air flowing over them face on. They could kind of shed it upwards, um, or downwards as the case may be. It's not clear what they, what they actually were going to wind up doing. Um, but I, I believe their initial designs had the, uh, the, the blades pointed down towards the bottom of the rocket. Oh boy. So the, the problem is you want to have them canted towards a vertical direction so that you don't have to deal with heating issues as much. But when you do that to get the same amount of thrust out of them, you have to spin them faster, which winds up increasing your heat issues. So they kind of had to find this balanced design. And I don't know, like in theory, what would have been the right angle to go with, but one way or the other, they more or less decided that they were going to have to use either like really fancy high heat flow materials, or they're going to have to actively cool their helicopter blades. And so like articulating like pop-out blades really seems to be the right way to go. Um, and they were considered and they did draw up initial designs for them. Um, but you know, they never got close enough to orbital tests to actually start manufacturing or even to, to solidify their designs as far as I can tell. Um, with, with all that said, like they did produce a heaping, ton of novel technology. Um, like they designed this bizarre rotary rocket. They designed, um, some of these, uh, potentially crazy, um, helicopter blades. And they also designed and built what may be one of the very first, if not the first composite liquid oxygen tank. Um, and not only did they construct it, but they filled it with liquid oxygen, I believe, like actually like did cryogenic pressure testing. And it, it was so good that they wound up shooting at it to try and test it to destruction. They, as far as I know, they only tanked this thing up once. And so 
um, they never encountered the issues that the Amos 6 carbon, carbon overwrapped pressure vessels did. But like, there's this weird alternate reality where SpaceX would have uh, donated their Amos 6 disaster into the past. Um, the an Amos 6 type disaster would have happened to the Roton and SpaceX would have been able to learn this lesson early on, right? Because like, we know that carbon composites don't work really well when directly exposed to liquid oxygen, but we had never demonstrated it. Like a company had never lost money because of it. And so SpaceX didn't learn that lesson early on. They didn't pay attention to the, to the previous lessons. And like if Roton would have had a vehicle explode in the way that Amos 6 did, maybe SpaceX wouldn't have had to have that disaster happen to them. I don't know. This is so theoretical and bizarre. It's, it's, truly delightful okay so that's that's roton uh c9 i think is what their full-scale vehicle is going to be called it never got built however roton atv did get built and it did get flown atv is the atmospheric test vehicle um it was the proof of concept vehicle for just the landing phase of the flight um it had no rocket engines it was basically the world's weirdest looking helicopter um like the full scale vehicle it was cone shaped and did i mention that roton the the actual orbital vehicle is planned to be an ssto <laughs> no no you didn't mention that <laughs> yeah. yeah 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 okay it was so, the 90s um, it was the 90s exactly so so atv uh was not an ssto it was an ss to nowhere because uh, it just went up and down but it had this delightfully weird uh traffic cone shape uh it didn't have an engine or heat shield but it did have uh rotor blades and uh rotor blades are really expensive to manufacture and they needed these things to have all of the control of a helicopter um so they bought a helicopter rotor head a Sikorsky S58 rotor head. And they got it for $50,000 because it had been in a crash. Uh, but they went, yeah, sure. Doesn't look like it has any damage. Let's put it on top of something that looks like a rocket. Okay. No expense. Yeah. Uh, I mean, for real, like they had so many costs to cut. Like you have to, you have to, there's, you can't blame them for buying, uh, a disused <laughs> helicopter parts. You can't, you can't, yeah, you, you have to. Um, so they, they put this thing on their, on their, uh, rocket lookalike. They slapped some hydrogen peroxide jets on the tips, uh, and they went to town. The vehicle was not fun to fly because it's a helicopter with no tail. Um, on top of that, the pilots wound up uh, nicknaming the cockpit the bat cave because it had such a narrow field of view like you literally when you were sitting on the ground you couldn't see the ground oh boy so you can't see the ground you can barely see the horizon um you basically have to fly this thing on instrumentation um including a sonar altimeter it's very polite of them to put a sonar altimeter in this thing uh you you really want to have true above the ground altitude when you're flying this thing and they they did indeed test this thing they they took it on three different flights the first flight happened uh july 28th 1999 the flight lasted four minutes and 40 seconds and they went up to eight feet 
uh, which is 2.4 meters in altitude. They hovered and they landed. Um, at that point, they didn't have a fly-by-wire system. And, and so like, this is a, a fairly short flight. It was actually longer than their second flight, but four minutes and 40 seconds. And, and the entire time, uh, the pilot, uh, Marty Sarigul Klegen, I think is how the name is pronounced. Uh, and Brian Benny was the co-pilot. The pilot and co-pilot are having to put yaw control input in to keep this thing from spinning because it's a helicopter with no tail. If the name Brian Benny sounds familiar, yes, uh, he flew, um, the second Ansari space X prize flight in spaceship one, you know, scaled composites is building the vehicle or is building the airframe. They flew this vehicle out of Mojave. Of course, a spaceship one pilot is going to be on board. Uh, so that's, that's the first flight. The second flight took place on September 16th. They flew for two minutes and 30 seconds. Um, they got up to 20 feet in altitude. That's 6.1 meters. And this time they added fly-by-wire systems. I don't actually think that they had a true full fly-by-wire. I think it was just the, the throttle was fly-by-wire. They call it like an auto throttle. And they also eliminated the yaw. So I think they basically tied the throttle into the yaw controller, something like that. They also upgraded the thrusters, but for some reason they flew for less time. I don't know exactly what the deal is. Maybe they just ate through their, uh, their hydrogen peroxide quicker. Okay. Then they, their third and final flight is the topic of this, this week in spaceflight history. Um, it was October 12th. Um, and this was a really cool flight. They actually did some translation. They flew straight down the flight line at Mojave. Um, they translated, uh, 4,300 feet. That's 1,310 meters. Um, they got up to speeds of 54 miles an hour, uh, which is 85 kilometers an hour. And they went up higher than either of the other two flights. They got up to 75 feet or 23 meters. There's one line in the Wikipedia article that says that they, they saw some instability during translation. I have no idea what that means. I have no idea what that implies. Um, hopefully it's something they could, uh, fix later on. And hopefully it wasn't, you know, an inherent flaw of this crazy flying traffic cone design. <laughs> I, I tend to think it, it might have been inherent to the design, right? No tail means that you're really not going to be able to do very much control on this vehicle. They, they actually later on, they plan to add uh, steering thrusters even to the orbital vehicle. Um, I can only assume that they had small like RCS thrusters um, on ATV as well, because otherwise I don't know how you get any yaw input. Maybe, maybe there's something cool that you can do by tilting the rotor blades and adjusting the throttle of the rockets that you can do something like that. I, I don't know, but I, I tend to think, uh, I tend to think you need to have, uh, RCS thrusters. Okay. So we're, we're nearly at the end of the weirdness. Um, the, the vehicle was planned to be flown a fourth time. Um, they were going to go up to, uh, 10,000 feet. Um, oh, and demonstrate um, auto-rotative descent, right? This is like the best feature of a helicopter. Helicopters are uh, fuel guzzlers. They're difficult to fly, but one thing they do really well is they're super duper safe. If your engine dies, 
you just spiral back down to the ground. You're going to get dizzy, but you're going to hit the ground at a reasonably low speed. And and if that's the best feature of a helicopter, I can only assume that that is the best feature of the rotor vehicle. Um, and, and yeah, they were going to go up to 10,000 feet. I don't know if they were going to cut the engine right away or if they were only going to do auto rotation for a portion of the descent. Uh, but th- they were going to cut the engine at some point and, and spin back down to the ground. And yeah, Dennis, oh no. They're, they're, <laughs> they stopped from what I can understand, not so much because the money ran out, but because, um, the, the safety just wasn't there. They, they weren't confident enough that they could make it to 10,000 feet and back. Because I mentioned that you can't see the ground in this thing, right? I think I did. <laughs> yep. So, so like that's that's the end. I just I have to say, like I know I laughed through most of this, and I know that there aren't incredibly fantastic details to be had. But just because I'm laughing doesn't mean that I'm in any way denigrating uh, the designers or even the design itself. I think like. I think that weird designs like this do have a future. It's just that they've got a lot of problems to solve and they probably won't be useful uh, to anybody but hobbyists. But access to space is getting cheaper and cheaper. And one day we're going to have hobbyists going into orbit. Like you can't convince me otherwise. It's going to happen one day. And one day I really hope that one of Bert Rutan's great, great, great grandchildren sees this design and winds up making a, a kit rocket that, that they sell, um, that hobbyists will buy and put together and, and go to orbit for a short amount of time in a very cramped cockpit that they can barely see out of. But they'll, you know, they'll be able to put on their very, very high quality virtual reality goggles and look down on the earth in full human eye resolution and and float around in space for a little bit. That's a cool vision. Yeah. And <laughs> and yeah, this is a, a very strange vehicle, but I kind of feel the same way that like it's it's very alluring because of all the new and strange technology. You know what I mean? Like you think that there's got to be something there. Like maybe if you combine a propeller with a rotating engine, I don't know, something will happen. But um, I mean, it didn't happen in this case, but I can't help but think that some of the more far-flung ideas like this do have a future. Yeah. So I found an interview with Gary Hudson by Hobby Space. Let me put this in here. But let me just give you one line from this. The interviewer. If you were given $300 million today to build a reusable launch vehicle, would you still go with the basic Roton approach? Hudson's response, no. The Roton project was one of those train wrecks where everyone can see the bridges out, but the engineer can't slow the train down in time. (laughs) And other people are throwing the switches. <laughs> oh boy. Yeah. Yeah. The engineer can't slow the train down because it's got too much rotational velocity. <laughs> yeah. Okay. And so if you do indeed have more questions than answers, um, you can go find even more questions. Um, by doing a little bit of extra reading, um, we have a lot of links, um, like really high quality links in the show notes. There's a YouTube video, um, uh, of course it's Scott Manley. Like, of course he did uh, an episode on this. Um, but Mike Stewart, um, has got a really good link that he gave us. Um, 
that's a thread that was uh, like a, a forum thread from like 2004, I think. Um, Dennis, you found a really great article um, on hobbyspace.com uh, that's an interview uh, with Bevan McKinney. And or like, Gary Hudson. Can, oh, is it, is it Gary Hudson? Okay. And like, you can, you can also, I would recommend looking up patents and articles written by Bevan McKinney because like, he's got a couple of like escape, uh, like, like a rescue vehicle, uh, kind of designs. Like it, it's, it's wonderful. Like I love Mojave, right? Like the weirdest shit comes out of Mojave. Um, but also like some of the most successful things come out of Mojave. Like it's, it's just good. Well, let's, uh, let's hope next week's event include are just as interesting and hopefully this time a little, a little bit more transparent in terms of the clue. So what is that clue, Dennis? <laughs> I'll take that shade. <laughs> well, next week in 2014, duck and cover. This has nothing to do with quarks. I, I'm pretty sure. <laughs> That's that was, all I know. I was thinking of being a smartass and being next week in 2014. It was the first of the last beginnings that after. <laughs> it, <laughs> but I thought I'd just say the clue. <laughs> all right. Well, next week in 2014, yeah, duck and cover. All right. Well, if you think you know what that's in reference to, give us a tweet with the hashtag this week SF and good luck. Good luck, everybody. Okay. Moving on to upcoming spaceflight events. We got some launches, uh, some flyby, some other stuff. Just a big mixed bag of six different events. Yeah. The, the first one is the second crude flight of new shepherd how crazy that they actually mm -hmm. were able to get turned around this quickly i mean we'll we'll see maybe they're yeah. going to have a delay but so um new shepherd this is uh ns18 ns18 will be flying um glenn devree chris boshwizen uh i hope i pronounced that name correctly audrey powers and i don't i don't know uh how do you pronounce this william shatner I think I got that right as well. <laughs> Never heard of them. And so uh, they were going to launch the day that this show comes out, but they've got uh, high winds predicted on that day. So they pushed it back a day. So um, New Shepard NS-18 is currently scheduled to fly Wednesday, October 13th at 1330 hours UTC. Uh, that's uh, 830 a.m. Uh, Central Time. Um, the broadcast uh, will be on blueorigin.com and probably on their YouTube channel. Um, and they're going to start the broadcast an hour and a half ahead of the launch, which again is at 1330 hours UTC. And I managed to do all of that with no Bill Shatner impression. We'll we'll save it for, I guess, the uh, post-flight <laughs> summary well there. Well thank you, thank you. Then on October 14th, uh, we have a Soyuz launch, and that is with OneWeb 11, uh, and that is at 0940 UTC, which is about 5, or which is 540 on the East Coast. Uh, so yeah, that is launching, uh, you know, just another OneWeb uh, satellite, plenty of those. The launch site is from the Vostochny Cosmodrome in Russia. So yep, you can check that one out as well. Uh, hopefully, that will be broadcast somewhere. Yeah, just just to stave off the correction burns, it's not just another one web satellite; it's just another thirty four satellites. Oh, I'm sorry. You're yeah, 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 another yeah. batch of one web satellites. There you go. Yeah. And then next up on Friday, October fifteenth, we have another crewed launch, but this one is going to orbit. And in fact, this is the second crewed flight for the uh, to the Chinese uh, space station. And so, a Long March two F slash G, which is the uh, uh, variant of the 2F that has a larger payload fairing to accommodate the Tiangong the dimensions of the uh, the space station. Uh, this uh, Long March 2FG will be taking Shenzhou 13 
to orbit. And so again, that's Friday, October 15th at 1624 UTC. Uh, we might not have the time pinned down exactly, but uh, keep an eye out for that. And uh, being a crewed uh, flight uh, from China, it'll be flying out of uh, Jiuquan. And um, while the crew hasn't been publicly announced, uh, at least on Wikipedia, there's been speculations. And so uh, we may be seeing uh, Jai Jigang, Wang Yangping, and Ye Guangfu uh, going to orbit. And so uh, really, really uh, had a good, I think they did a great job uh, showing the Shenzhou 12 launch and all that. And so keep an eye out. After that, we have a launch that um, my co-hosts have very generously allowed me to do because I am very, very excited about it. Um, this next launch is an Atlas V in the 401 configuration flying the Lucy mission. Oh, my goodness, you guys. So, so Lucy is going to be, I think, the first time that we've ever gone um, to the Trojan asteroids, the Trojans and the Greeks. Um, and so what's really cool is it's going to go into a high inclination orbit, um, a high, not a high inclination orbit, a high eccentricity orbit um, so that it and, and it'll put itself into resonance with Jupiter so that it will bounce back and forth between Jupiter's L4 and L5 points so that it'll get to go spend some time with the Trojans and then it'll, f you know, fly around the sun with if you're referencing Jupiter, it's going to fly behind the sun and then go over to the Greeks and then back to the Trojans back and forth. And it's um, such a cool use of orbital dynamics and the Trojan and Greek asteroids are such a cool example of Lagrange points. I mean, it just, it's, ah. it's really, really, really darn cool. So Lucy is going to need, um, is it just one gravity assist from the Earth? The GIF I'm looking at makes it look like it has an outbound one uh, from the Earth, and then when it and then it basically gets another boost from the Earth as it heads to the other right. uh, Lagrange point. Right, it's in resonance with Jupiter and the Earth. Like th this is uh, Rich Purnell being awesome, right? <laughs> um, so Lucy is going to be going on a, a 12 year mission, um, and I I don't even know if they can extend that mission out afterwards just due to the dynamics, but maybe maybe they can figure something out. Um, Lucy is going to begin that 12-year mission uh, on Saturday, October the 16th. Um, they have a fairly long window. It runs from 0934 hours UTC to 1049 hours UTC. That's quite early in the morning. I'm not sure I'm going to be able to watch this one live um, because I will have just driven across the northeast <laughs> the day before <laughs> we'll see we'll see but nasa is going to be having um special coverage on nasa tv um so the in eastern time the launch is going to happen no later than 05 34 um hours so 5 30 in the morning um and, and it looks like they're going to begin their coverage at 5 a.m um which suggests that the launch window is actually not going to be that long we'll we'll see if they've actually trimmed off uh some of it there uh, but maybe they've narrowed it down to a half hour instead of an hour and a half but there you go that's uh that's lucy and then later that day on nasa tv uh, you can watch the coverage of uh, the hatch closing of the Soyuz MS-18, as well as the on-docking later that day. So the 
hatch closing is at 4.15 p.m. Then later on that day uh, at 9 p.m., so this is in the evening, you can watch the undocking of the Soyuz. The undocking itself is scheduled for 9.13, so the coverage begins at 9 and then 13 minutes later, you can watch them undock. Uh, and then the deorbit burn is at 11.15. I'm sorry, the coverage for the deorbit is uh, scheduled at 11.15 and the actual deorbit burn is at 11.41. And then the landing is scheduled for just after midnight at 12.36. So there's like a lot going on on NASA TV that you can watch that day. Yeah, um, you just, just stay glued to your TV or however you watch it uh, for Lucy coverage and yeah. on dockings and deorbit burns and all that. Yeah, very cool. And then finally, with this long list of events we've got coming up, uh, also on October 16th, not something you can watch, but you can just keep, uh, keep in the back of your head. Uh, the Parker Solar Probe will have its uh, fifth Venus flyby. And so that's going to be happening again on the 16th of October. And to just throw some fun facts, right? It's having all these Venus flybys so it can uh, reduce its orbit around the sun. And so after this, it will then be in a 9.2 million kilometer orbit traveling 163 kilometers per second. Wow. Wow. <laughs> Alrighty, those are your upcoming spaceflight events. All right, and with all those events, let's uh, deorbit the show. I guess that's our last spaceflight event, right? The deorbiting. All right, and so with that, we would like to thank <laughs> Ronald Jenkins and Tim Dodd for our music. We record live on Sundays at 9 a.m. Pacific, 12 p.m. Eastern. Thank you so much to our $5 and up Patreon supporters for joining our recording sessions and helping us make correction burns on the fly. And a special thanks to uh, our listeners uh, live in today's chat. A uh, special shout out to Kenton, Colin, Mike, and Anderson. Thanks for joining us. If you want to support the show as well, please leave us a review wherever you listen or visit the orbitalmechanics.com slash support for our Patreon campaign, affiliate links, and other resources. And for more information on this episode, such as show notes and other links, visit our website at theorbitalmechanics.com and be sure to check out our store for mission patches, t-shirts, and hoodies. You can join our Discord for free during social distancing. Check our Twitter or Reddit for links. We're Orbital Podcasts on both. And you can talk directly to us by emailing info at theorbitalmechanics.com. All right, that's it. We will see you next week on Orbit. Until then, later. Goodbye, everybody. See you.